This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, I'm Dr. Jonathan Abel, and I'm here today with Dr. Bill Nance. Hello. And we're going to be talking to Professor Dirk Ringenberg about the, um, some of the work he does, in particular on the history of the U.S. Army Signal um, Branch Corps organization before and during World War I. Uh, so, Dirk, let's start with kind of a very basic definition, particularly for people who may not have a, a lot of background in, in armies, which is, what do we mean by signal? Well, what we mean by signal is that ability to transfer information from one individual or one organization to another, and that information then, in a military sense, uh, be used to uh, initiate orders or to convey a, a uh, situation to a commander so that it leads to an outcome. Um, we now kind of encapsulate signal in the term command and control more in the modern parlance of the word. That, that really doesn't come out until post-World War I, but uh, most uh, individuals would understand it in that regard. Okay, and so we tend to associate signal, literally the meaning of the word, with electronics, but, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. The, the ability for electronics really starts in the Crimean War with the advent of the telegraph for military purposes. Now, the telegraph had been around, but it was not um, looked upon as something militaries would need until that time. England was transmitting via telegraph uh, information from the Crimea back to their parliament and you know that was uh, you know instituting decisions uh, along those lines. The US really uses a telegraph militarily in the Civil War as armies become larger and commanders are no longer able to visually see their forces and theaters of operation are spread out as they were in the Civil War. This becomes uh, fairly ubiquitous to armies, modern armies, uh, after that point. Mm-hmm. So, and and we're building on pre- prior traditions of signal. Um, the Signal Corps or Signal Branch symbol, of course, is a set of flags. So you could transmit information through flags, uh, especially on ships, right? But what the telegraph allows us to do, starting in the eighteen yeah, about eighteen forties is it enables light speed communication. That's right. The telegraph, uh, really, you get that near instant uh, transfer of information from one point to another. As long as you have the wire light. As long as you're connected by wire. And this is uh, what we're going to see in the early 20th century uh, become an issue for armies. Now, all the way back uh, in antiquity, Information has been transferred through various means, visual as well as runners, you know, the famous marathon, the movement of information by people, animals. 
you know, mm-hmm. certainly pigeons, you know, signal animals, even dogs have carried messages. Uh, these practices, uh, as you mentioned, the, the, the wigwag, which is the, the visual signaling flags and, uh, you know, other methods of visual communication, flares, uh, lights, you know, the heliograph, which is transferring information by uh, mirrors, uh, that is all used and still used at some level uh, in armies and navies today. The Navy in particular uh, continues to use visual signaling with lamps and lights and stuff, but those are all contingent on atmospheric conditions, uh, which, uh, and the ability, number one, to see uh, what you're sending the message to. Um, As we see in the early 20th century, the increase in the size of armies really forces countries to uh, figure out, starting with the telegraph, how to transfer this information, what we call over the horizon. And this leads rise in 1890s uh, to the advent of wireless, which is you know, the, the capture, the sending and capturing of radio waves uh, from one point to another. And uh, this starts a, essentially a radio, which by the, night, by the start of the second or first world war, that term uh, really replaces the term wireless uh, as uh, a military device. This starts the arms race of the electronic age where uh, most would think, you know, we're in the electronic age now. Well, we're just evolving from that, uh, you know, electronic age that really started in 1898 when the British first wrote the first government contract with uh, Marconi, who is essentially the commercial inventor of wireless transmission devices. Now, before we get going too far down into the, te- into the technological evolution, can you take a minute to describe, like, the military advantage of being able to communicate faster than your opponent. So we, it's, we, we talk about better weapons, we talk about better armor, but, but how does better communications enable battlefield victory? Well, it, the transference of information quickly will give one commander possibly an advantage in the aspect that uh, if he understands what the enemy's doing, the enemy's intent, he could then maneuver his own forces uh, because we're uh, in conjunction with this electronic revolution that's happening in armies. There's also a transportation revolution happening. You know, the advent of the internal combustion engine, the ability to move forces uh, on the seas through uh, steam. Uh, If you understand your enemy's intent or you see something and you're able to convey it, you can converge forces uh, on a much broader scale. Because again, armies are bigger, they're gonna be spread out uh, across greater distances, and this ability to uh, coordinate, i.e. that control part of command and control, uh, gives you a great advantage. But it's also uh, comes along with some problems that we still see today. Okay, so you, you've given us a kind of a good overview of, of what we'll be talking about. Let's start in kind of the beginning of the story you've, you've laid out for us. So a, a commander of a Greek army 2,500 years ago 
would recognize the signaling mechanisms of an American army in, let's say, the War of 1812, right? Runners, horses, um, as you mentioned, animals, some, some kind of distance communication, whether it's flags or mirrors or whatever. Then the telegraph comes along. And the telegraph appears in, in some form, 1830s, 1840s. It's ubiquitous across good chunks of America and Western Europe. But by the mm-hmm. 1850s, as you mentioned, it's transatlantic and, and transoceanic by that point, too. Um, but really, the, the communications revolution takes off after the American Civil War, after the Unification Wars in Europe, after 1870. So talk to us a little bit about why technology is evolving so rapidly in the late 19th century. What's happening in societies and states that's leading us to go from signal mirrors plus telegraphs to, as you mentioned, wireless communication and all these other uh, technological revolutions? Yeah, it's part of that industrial revolution and it's that that advent of uh, a commercial value is placed upon these uh, telegraph lines that is really tied to capitalism. You know, the ability to transmit information, the ability to send communication messages becomes its own industry in and of itself, and people are willing to pay for that. That funds more research. Um, You could almost say this is one of the first off-the-shelf technologies that then finds a military application broader than what's originally intended, and that uh, is really based on the commercial value. Prior to the First World War, as the U.S. in 1916 saw the writing on the wall, uh, the Signal Corps was very small, and the connections it had with private industry, AT&T for one, uh, were developed to where a lot of the executives were given reserve commissions, and uh, technicians were essentially told when the call comes, we're going to need your expertise in the military. And then when that call came in April 1917, uh, there were a abundance of, of well-prepared technicians in the electronics field to assist the American Expeditionary Forces. Now, that unfortunately was not where the major problems that we see uh, in connection with the Western Front occurred. It was at the lower levels. And this is where uh, technology goes through the, you know, development goes through stages. And we, we see, um, certainly in the First World War, personnel policies contributed to uh, problems within the U.S. Army, specifically the American Expeditionary Forces, just as much as technical limitations. But, so you, you've, you've raised a number of very interesting points. Let's start with one you made early. Um, what you're saying is that we've kind of reversed the acquisitions process because up until this point, military technology tends to be military first, right? Uh, whether it's the gun, certainly there's no real civilian application for an artillery piece. But now what you're telling us in the late 19th century is that the market is developing technologies that the military then latches onto later. Oh, that's exactly right. And we see this at the turn of the century. Uh, uh, and, and the electronics aspect of it is probably the biggest one. Remember, you have, you have certainly in American history, very tight budgets during peacetime. The ability to R&D uh, you know, pieces of equipment, and these electronics devices were very expensive at the time. 
um, it was very limited. You know, a, a few thousand individuals in the Signal Corps, and amongst them, a few hundred that are working on R&D couldn't compare to the tens of thousands that were in the telecommunication business that was flourishing uh, in the country. We'll also see this in the aircraft industry as well later. Now, you're talking about personnel policies, and I want to kind of dig on that a little bit. So we're talking about we know as an Army that we have to communicate. So we're, uh, we're depending on the civilians for R&D, but why does the Army need to reach out to all these civilian industries when we hit war to suddenly reinvigorate our signal corps? It seems like that we would at least have a proportional size signal force for our Army that could then grow. Why, was, why did the U.S. Army have to reach back to civilian industry so much for its personnel? Uh, this is that age-old uh, envisioning of doctrine combined with technology. The Signal Corps, uh, established in the 1860s, was really one of the first modern Signal Corps of any major army. Uh, the British, uh, for instance, they don't create a Signal Corps separate until post-World War I. Uh, a lot of foresight went into, from Albert Meyer, into the creation of Signal Corps, followed on by Adolphus Greeley, uh, who had the longest tenure as a chief signal officer. His vision was that trained signal soldiers in these new mediums, certainly wireless, uh, and I say wireless because wireless is, you're communicating Morse code. Uh, Morse code is extremely difficult to learn and using code, sending 120 words a minute, is an extremely difficult undertaking. So the Signal Corps in personnel policy says, we need to have signal soldiers down to the battalion level in the infantry battalions. Well, if you, if you understand how the Army's formed in the early 20th century, you still have very parochial branches, artillery, infantry, uh, the uh, Signal Corps is just one of them and a fledgling branch. They're wanting positions that are in infantry units, for example. The infantry doesn't want to give up those positions. And the infantry's argument is not just parochial, right? They're saying, hey, if you take away an infantry officer, this, this unit will perform less well. And that's part of the argument. Uh, but as Adolphus Greeley was saying, you're going to need trained signal individuals or you're going to perform poorly anyway. Uh, so this argument goes through the pre-World War I time frame, and uh, we don't see it realized until we enter the First World War and we're in the trenches and the signal operations from, well, let's say, division up to Corps, up to Army, up to Headquarters Army Expeditionary Force are, are excellent because that's what the Signal Corps is trained to do. Wire, wireless, it's that below brigade level where they don't have the signal expertise that they are struggling when it comes to command and control. So let's break this apart just a little bit more. So let's start up at that upper echelon, which you said the Signal Corps is trained to do and they where they've been allocated the slots, the corps, the armies, the divisions. What does that infrastructure, what does that signal infrastructure look like? Well, uh, the directive that came from the headquarters Army Expeditionary Force, General Pershing, to the chief signal officer prior to 
uh, June of 1917, stated, I want you to create a essentially telecommunications app uh, infrastructure that looks like the commercial one in the United States. That would be wired in telegraph from point to point. We're talking from brigades to divisions to battalions. Telephones, which have to be wired in as well. That's your only voice electronic communication is a telephone. Wireless, because as was mentioned earlier, the, the world's pretty connected. You have submarine cables that span the earth. And you also have wireless stations. These are very big, not portable, uh, that are sending wireless information across continents. Uh, Pershing wants these uh, systems in place, and they essentially are. And then we also create an electronics uh, workshop, so to speak, with the French and British to work on uh, uh, other projects. Aircraft radios, those type of things. So you've 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 gotten at one of the great paradoxes of American military history. Um, when you mentioned that, you know, we World War or Civil War, excuse me, we have a very modern, very large army in the United States, uh, also very large navy. Uh, but then in the period after, basically for four decades, with with the brief exception of the Spanish War, we have a military that is both amateur and nowhere near the same rank as other great powers. So the paradox is we have a, an economy that becomes the world's largest in the 1870s, a massive land area, huge population, but a country that, that does not want a military that is large and professional and therefore does not create and fund it. So as technology is evolving, as, as you know, students in military history know, wars are becoming larger, more destructive, uh, armies are becoming bigger, the United States is, is in some ways sitting that out. So how is the pre-war army dealing with these problems that we'll, we'll return to, uh, uh, that we'll see on the Western Front, of bringing new technologies and new enabling, um, whether it's technologies or doctrines or whatever, in an austere environment where the, the, the people have essentially said, keep your head down? Well, that's that's the the true uh, that's the true problem, and and the army is able to innovate in certain areas. The first uh, PhD at, from an army officer is awarded to a guy named Squire, and he uh, achieves this in an electronics field because the state of the art wireless telegraphs that are available are only available for lease. So the Marconi company out of Europe does not want to sell sets. They understand the market and leasing is going to make them more money. So the army doesn't have the money to lease. They're able to get one or two sets and we create our own laboratory and bring on board officers who have, uh, you know, technical experience and try to create our own. So are these like direct commissions? or Some are direct commissions. Uh, he was commissioned as an artillery officer initially, and then he branches, because of his expertise, into communications, into the signal branch. But we're, we're forced to innovate. And this, I mean, this actually is the reason the nomenclature on the radios, because we use bits and pieces from other, and these are the early ones, uh, for example, a radio is called an SCR and then a number. And that SCR stands for Set Complete Radio because we're 
building our own at these electronics laboratory in DC because we can't afford to buy uh, or lease uh, the state-of-the-art stuff. Now, let's talk uh, kind of the scale in which the Signal Corps is expanding during World War One. So, kind of before World War One, first off, a division headquarters is kind of hard to come by, anyways. But how many Signal guys would you kind of have before the war, and then how does it expand after the war, or during the war? Oh, pre World War One, you have a couple of thousand enlisted and officers total, and they are uh, spread out from the Philippines to uh, missions in Europe. Uh, uh, you know, post-1890, the Signal Corps loses a meteorological, uh, essentially, assignment that they had with the creation of that branch of the government. Before that, you had a lot more Signal Corps soldiers because we were manning, the Signal Corps was manning meteorological posts all through the United States and provided the national weather forecast daily. Once they lost that mission, they lost thousands of highly trained individuals, so they went back to, you know, several hundred officers, a couple thousand enlisted, uh, which fluctuated based off of budgets. So there was this always struggle to keep talent. Uh, and once the war starts, uh, that that obviously explodes. We we end up. You got to understand the Signal Corps officer also was that one branch of the army that became the catch-all. The Signal Corps had the first airplanes. The Signal Corps had the first, uh, obviously, wireless radios and telegraph. The Signal Corps manned the photographic section of the Army. The Signal Corps manned the meteorological section of the Army. So they expanded to tens of thousands uh, by the time that the uh, we're in Europe for the First World War. So uh, we have a problem with a an undermanned military to begin with, Signal Corps specifically, as technology is changing rapidly. So as you mentioned, the, the Army might look to lease a Marconi set, for example, but there may be another better version of that being invented in, you know, somewhere in England or even somewhere in the U.S. So how does this undermanned and underfunded Signal Corps deal with acquisitions in an environment where by the time you get the technology, it might already be obsolete? Oh, well, we, along with the Navy, we establish a research laboratory in D.C. This is happening um, rapidly. Not, it's not just wireless. It's, it's airplanes, you know, from essentially 1902 to 1916. There is a, as I said, an arms race in several technologies. And the ability of the Signal Corps to maintain these, not just academic uh, relationships, amongst major colleges on the East Coast. They are maintaining a relationship with business. AT&T is a big one uh, because they're one of the biggest uh, when it comes to the telecommunications. So you're seeing this uh, mix of military, private business, academics, governance, and they're coming together in a scientific community uh, discussing these, these issues. And uh, this creates its own synergy, certainly in the United States, but it's happening all across uh, the globe. Uh, some of our first large wireless sets that we buy are from uh, a German company, which, you know, they are some of the first uh, to really innovate in this field. Now, of course, once the war starts, we're not getting any more of those. And 
certainly once we uh, uh, have our own sets that we're creating. But the Signal Corps, along with several other branches of the military, the artillery, uh, we create some of our own uh, pieces of equipment that we're going to use. Um, but the money has to be there to do that. So you, you dropped a name earlier during this period. I think it was Adolphus Greeley? Yep. Adolphus. So, so who is Adolphus Greeley and what role is he playing here? Adolphus Greeley, uh, he was enlisted during the Civil War. Uh, he was actually shot in the face at Antietam. Uh, and and uh, so his beard grows kind of funny. Gives him a, a unique uh, look. He's an explorer. He uh, explored uh, the North Pole and other places. He is well-versed in the... Uh, scientific community, you know, one of the founders of the Smithsonian and other institutes there in Washington, D.C. He is the chief signal officer for about 20 years, which is one of the longest tenures of any chief signal officer, and uh, really converts the signal corps from this basically visual, we're going to maintain some telegraph wires, to a very forward-thinking technologically innovative organization and he's there long enough that he creates these relationships with people like Bell and and, and uh, Edison and some of these others that really uh, advance that uh, credibility in the army uh, as a scientific organization. Um, he sees the benefits certainly in wireless and you know, before he turns over the Chief Signal Corps position to a guy named Allen, um, who is one of his protégés, uh, they set on path uh, this this uh, really irresistible momentum to uh, expand that scientific base within the Signal Corps. And then, of course, George Squire comes on, who is, uh, you know, a genius at this and, and really takes over from there. So it's this cohesion amongst these officers that uh, really uh, sets a path that the Signal Corps doesn't deviate on. So you're almost laying out the fact that, yes, the Signal Corps was small, it was underfunded for what they would like to do, but you had these key individuals who were able to research, innovate, and build public-private partnerships so that when they did need to expand, they had the ability to. Is oh, that, is that without question. I mean, the, the, all, the, all the documents show that there was a vision. Uh, they understood that aspect of American democracy and small type budgets. And once the war started and we had to expand, given the role that they were assigned, uh, they performed it marvelously. I mean, General Pershing himself commends the Signal Corps on their ability. Unfortunately, during the war, that frontline aspect, let's, as I said, with the infantry battalions, infantry companies, their ability for command and control is extremely limited, partly because of attrition, partly because of the availability of some sort of device uh, that we are going to create during the interwar period uh, that, that they don't have at the time. So you, you said several times as we're kind of bridging into World War One, uh, once the war starts. But America is in kind of an interesting position here, a position that actually shares with Italy to some degree, which is that the war starts before America's war starts. So 
the war begins in in late 1914 as as students in military history know and america sits the war out for most of its fighting in europe and elsewhere so what is happening in the american army while the war is being waged across europe and other places as america's watching it Oh, we we have individuals that are present, and they they go to the battlefields and they see what is happening, and and they are preparing for what they are seeing. Um, unfortunately, the you, you know the first six months of the war, there's maneuver, there's mobility, and then it's stagnant on the Western Front. Um, so what we're observing and and the the uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures that we're getting from the British and the French are really trench warfare. Static warfare, what do you need to get out of it? Well, Pershing's idea of open warfare is, you know, uh, we need to be mobile. And so a lot of the information, a lot of the training, a lot of the uh, communications equipment that we see and that we mimic from the French and the British are really for a very static form of warfare. And this will become very, very relevant early in 1918, well, really mid-May 1918 to the end of the war, when we need to be mobile and nobody on the Allied side has the ability for really cohesive command and control as a mobile force. No. It just hasn't been exercised. Now, one of the things that you've been uh, talking about, you've been alluding to kind of the last hundred yards, so to speak, of the communications problem. So let's kind of take a message. Uh, so it's it originates at Army headquarters. It goes by, by a telegraph, maybe even printed out and hand-carried. It arrives at a Corps headquarters. It's developed. It's sent to a division. Division hands it to a regiment. Talk me through how Lieutenant uh, X is get is receiving that order and how he is communicating up that chain uh, so we can kind of highlight the challenges of the that last hundred yards once he leaves the front well the the, the challenge is is that last hundred yards the the order generated at uh, let's say headquarters army expeditionary force is transmitted via telegraph or more likely telephone verbally uh, it's also delivered via a messenger on a motorcycle. So very quickly, it'll it'll arrive at an army headquarters. It'll be transmitted to a corps headquarters. This will all happen very quickly. It's once it gets down to the brigade, then the ability to get that message forward is where the problems are all going to start. Um, and a lot of this is due to attrition. That lieutenant. Uh, that you mentioned, uh, if he was on the Western Front in June of 1918, is more likely not there by August. The attrition rate is so high in the companies, uh, the ability to keep uh, a coherent uh, group from one attack to another is almost non-existent. And so this idea that uh, um, we need to have a, a system that is much more responsive uh, at that level, it just doesn't exist yet. A lot of divisions resort to runners because they do not have, remember the Western Front is consumed by artillery. So wires that are run from a company headquarters to a battalion headquarters are destroyed uh, frequently. And, and, and deliberately. Correct. And deliberately, each side knows 
that uh, they need to keep the other side at that front area in the dark. And so there are massive efforts made to bury wires, to uh, wire parties, and wire parties going out fixing wire are casualties. And it's just this never-ending, uh, uh, you know, attrition that's happening. Um, almost, when you see the numbers, it's almost unbelievable. So that order may even get fairly quickly to a battalion headquarters. But then from the battalion headquarters to a company, and certainly down to the platoons that are going to be executing an attack, uh, it's going to have to be wire. You may use, um, you may have a wireless in some shape or fashion, but uh, the, the systems are so delicate that they're, that, that, uh, it would be it would be unique to have a company headquarters that had a wireless device. So uh, that's where the slowdown happens, and oftentimes it takes immense effort. Um, well, the first infantry division commander, General Summerall, he realizes that runners are getting such high casualties, but he doesn't really have a, an idea how to fix it. He requests a uh, scientific method to fix this problem of getting orders forward and information and it's just it's not realized like I said until uh, uh, the interwar period closer to the beginning of the Second World War and again if you have a telegraph uh, not even mention a telephone and it might be a wireless telegraph that operator needs to know Morse code mm -hmm. or if he sends it in the the clear so to speak and he's typing out a normal uh, verbal message is going to take a long time and the enemy is going to pick it up because they're they're able to listen in on these early wireless devices so it's uh, uh the battalion and below is just in a very tough situation yeah, before we dive into some of these details that you've laid out I, I'll, I'll ask a dumb question from a pre-modernist and somebody who's never been in uniform so i'm i'm an 18th century military specialist obviously that none of this technology exists in my period and yet large armies are able to command and control themselves. So the, the dumb question is, you know, when Napoleon, for example, issues orders, he gives very detailed orders to his corps commanders, and then he watches them fight from a church steeple. So why do we need to have higher commanders have more control over lower echelons that, that wireless and, and wired communication, voice communication might, provi might provide? What has changed that requires that? Oh, the, the, the lethal battlefield is much greater. I mean, the artillery, we're talking millions of soldiers facing off against each other and, and hundreds of thousands of casualties monthly. So, you know, Napoleon, as you, your example said, he might give a, a message to Ney. Ney leads it personally as a corps commander. Ney lives, and he's, even though he is in the fight, uh, his, his organization is not reduced to nobody, as some of these organizations in the First World War are just, uh, you know, thousands of individuals in an infantry regiment are lost monthly and you have to replicate, you have to replace that amount of people. Um, so there's no cohesion at that regard. Um, and you're just moving so many more individuals. Um, uh, and this is something that the commanders don't understand until they see it. The amount of, of individuals on the Western Front is, is uh, um, just immense. 
as a, for instance, you know, having been to say Waterloo, which was an army of field army, a battle of field armies, yet today would be maybe a brigade fight. That's exactly uh, right. So let's talk about, you were talking about the challenges of that last hundred yards, the, the lieutenant going over the top. He's received the order from his company commander. He goes over the top. He attacks forward, and he's really out of communications at that point. All the technology stops at a certain point, and as you said, he's left with a runner or something along these lines. Now, is this a training issue? Is it a technolo- technology issue, like the technology doesn't exist? Or is it an acquisition issue of the technology exists, but we haven't bought it? Uh, all the above. Uh, the, the lieutenant, you know, based, you know, really we also have to think of what that battlefield looks like. The immense destruction, the ability to move supplies forward, move individuals forward is, is very difficult. Now that lieutenant, he his only ability to communicate uh, behind him, let's say he takes an enemy trench line, crosses you know, 500 yards and, and he's in the enemy trenches, about his only ability to communicate would be he's going to probably carry a couple pigeons. Uh, homing pigeons are very uh, important at this point, but the communication is slow. He could send a runner, and if he was really lucky, let's say he was uh, the main effort, he might have a wireless set uh, that accompanies him if those individuals survived. Uh, the attrition rate and the ability to operate some of this equipment is 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 really complex, and so one of the uh, things that the army looks for is simplicity in devices, um, so that you don't need <clears throat> years and months of training in Morse code to be able to transmit information. This idea of voice communication. Uh, in radio is going to become one of the priorities for the Signal Corps. They are already developing it, but they're using it mostly in aircraft at the very end of the war. The infantry companies uh, are not a priority, even though that's where most of the casualties are. So uh, one of the, the interesting things you bring up, and it's it's not necessarily something a modern person might consider, uh, but what you're talking about is an army of people who may not be educated at all, or if they are educated, educated at the time is essentially fourth grade, reading basic math. So today, in you know, in, in the modern world, we have people who grow up with technology. Often young people are more facile with technology than older people, kind of as a rule, and technology is ubiquitous. But in this army, in this American Expeditionary Force, a large percentage of the soldiers and even officers may have never seen a piece of modern technology. They may have literally come off a farm. So how do you take those uh, largely conscripts and how do you figure out who you're going to make that that battalion or company signal person? Uh, obviously you want to you know cream off the you know the engineers, the telegraph operators, the people who went to college, but those those people are they're, they're few and they're going to die. So, so how do you deal with that in an army of people who, again, are largely uneducated? Well, this, this goes back to that idea of a professionalization of the army. You know, the, the NCO Corps, um, really before World War I, the, the company commander picks who he wants to be the sergeants to lead. And that's based off of whatever metric, you know, he's using at the time. Uh, maybe somebody has some extra schooling, like you said, or whatever. There's really no professional training. Now, 
in in France during the First World War, there were training centers set up of all manner. Part of part of the problem is that siphoned off a lot of junior leaders, uh, potential leaders who were needed at the front because of this, you know, you know, very attritional environment that was happening. Right. The infantry captains and lieutenants are being killed way faster than they can be replaced. Way faster. And really anybody that's doing anything uh, out of the ordinary, you know, if you go out on a listening post uh, with a wireless uh, device to listen in on the enemy, you're a major target and those are being destroyed uh, at a very rapid pace and and we're not able to keep up with what's required. So, you know, how do we professionally educate soldiers? How do we uh, get soldiers who are, you know, technically illiterate in areas, technology for one, and create devices that they could use with hours of instruction as opposed to months and weeks? Uh, this is going to be a major effort during the interwar period, and the U.S. Army solves this problem uh, by and large. Now, what's interesting is you, talk, you start talking about the interwar period as we start moving past this. And I'd like you to kind of comment on something that I actually got from uh, one of my old professors who said that uh, the German communication exercises they conducted, uh, radio communication exercises they conducted in the 1930s were almost more significant than the Panzer Division exercises. Your opinion? Yeah, certainly. Uh, uh, Guderian... Uh, known for as being the, the the father of the armor force. Well, he was he was part of a uh, specialized signal detachment during the First World War. So he understood the significance of command and control and how to coordinate through radio and and how even if you had an inferior weapon system, if you were able to mass through coordination. Uh, that it was going to pay off. And, and we paid attention to some of these exercises. Uh, the benefit in the United States during the interwar period, certainly in the signal realm, is we developed a series of radios. No, no, number one, uh, the advancement uh, in radio technology, the creation of FM, you know, frequency modulation by a guy named Armstrong, who was a signal officer during the First World War, gave uh, you know signal strength and and really clarity a lot more but we we created through industry Motorola created a handheld uh, radio AM radio which was specifically designed uh, it called a handy talkie an SCR 536 which was specifically designed for the infantry squads and platoons to use to give them voice communication back to the company. And then at the company levels, we created uh, what was called the SCR 300, a walkie-talkie, which was a backpack-carried voice communication radio that would then go from battalion or company to battalion. These systems required an operator a couple of hours of training to become effective. The United States was the only country in, during the Second World War that had radios reliable, by and large, down to the platoon and squad level. Uh, the Germans didn't even have this. Uh, they, their, their electronics industry was consumed in the, their anti-aircraft role and stuff like that. So we, the ghosts of the First World War uh, were, were eradicated during the interwar period, and we 
to this day place a large premium on easy to use effective voice communications and that in my opinion that all comes from our experiences during the First World War. So you mentioned these ghosts, um, and it, it, if I'm understanding you correctly, we don't quite solve the, the problems, particularly the last hundred yards problem in World War One. Is that correct? No, that's absolutely correct. It's so one of, the, one of the things that I think is ubiquitous in the history of technology is often the, the story is written where you have these visionaries, a Greeley type, mm -hmm. and the visionary sees the future and they're hampered by Luddites who just don't want things to change. The reality is often that the technology does not fit the promise until well after it's needed. So what kind of issues, you know, what kind of technical issues are the American uh, Expeditionary Force dealing with on the battlefield? What, and, and, and what kind of problems can they just not overcome during the war? Well, the, the big one is that, that AM radio amplitude modulation with a spark gap device broadcasts very broadly. And therefore, the, anyone close is going to be able to pick up the transmission. So one of the main concerns of commanders is, well, okay, I could use, if I'm allotted this wireless radio, uh, number one, it's big and bulky and it requires lots of soldiers. Okay, if they're able to overcome that aspect, it's that idea, well, the enemy could listen in. And therefore, it's not any good anyway. Um, and that is a major concern which is overcome by encoding and using things along those natures. But then, again, we get back to that attritional aspect. Okay, what happens when you lose those soldiers who know how to you know, number one, are Morse code operators, and two, encoding, and you're left with essentially a, a untrained force that you have to quickly try to train. Commanders in those situations did not see the value for the effort that was going to be required. Uh, the problem set just, just was too great. So, Dirk, uh, I'm going to ask you to put on your other hat. For those that may not know, you're, uh, you're a retired infantry officer. So... I want you to kind of tell us, uh, for those that might not have a, a complete understanding, what is the significance of a soldier being able to pick up a radio of whatever type and talk to a organization to his, to his or her rear, as opposed to writing a message and sending it back with a runner or sending a carrier pigeon? That that. It, uh, for uh, for professional officers, we um, we instantaneously grasp the significance. But can you kind of lay out for the listeners, like what is the huge? Why is that so huge? Yeah, certainly. When you when you pick up a radio and you call for help, you need help now. And and this lag time between uh, even a pigeon, who I mean, they can fly thirty miles an hour. I mean, but they're influenced by meteorological conditions and, and the message may never arrive. So that confidence that the soldiers have in battle that they can pick up a radio and request artillery, medevac, uh, air support, assistance from another ground organization and that that message is going to be instantaneously transmitted and received uh, provides a very high level of confidence. And the U.S. military is very 
conscious about this to this day. Uh, operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, very remote, difficult conditions. Um, it was rare for a unit not to be in some sort of, now we have tactical satellites and those things, but uh, we're always in communication. And this is a kind of that safety blanket that organizations who are conducting combat operations, um, it gives them confidence and it increases their lethality. Well, and let's put the two ideas that we just talked about together because the, the benefits, I think, even to somebody who's not been in uniform are, are fairly obvious, so particularly light speed communication wirelessly. But on the other hand, as you point out, and this is true on the World War I battlefield, it, signals are not magic. They can be intercepted, they can be blocked, they can be blocked by atmospheric problems, uh, you know, solar flares, things like that. And maybe more importantly for militaries, they can be intercepted. And of course that leads to an arms race of encryption, which requires much more skilled and, and skillful operators, right? You mentioned kind of decoding Morse code on the fly, which is not something you can learn in basic training. That takes years to be able to do. So how did the commanders of World War I balance these two aspects, the great benefit of communication with, with the admitted drawbacks of having an army that is, as we would say now, networked? Uh, by and large, and of course the American experience is roughly a year, and, and uh, by and large the, the wireless uh, were not used uh, in those forward positions. Number one, they, they had to be allocated specifically uh, because that wasn't part of the uh, essentially makeup of these infantry battalions. And um, it, it was, you know, that attritional aspect, they just didn't see the utility of it at, at a detriment to something else. Um, the, the Signal Corps finally is able to convince uh, certainly the infantry branch that you need a trained signal officer at each battalion and that is instituted late in 1918, which you know now we we see as a part of their actual uh, organization that that's that's there. But that is that really needs to be brought out. And so um, the, the the problems that the you know the line units were facing uh, that was not one that they even considered. They wanted something, as I said, General. The first infantry division commander requested a quote scientific solution to some of the problems they were having uh, in command and control, but there were just too many things to overcome. So, kind of looking at this broadly, the whole story of the the standing up of the Signal Corps and its performance in World War One, and and you mentioned some of the interwar years. Um, would you say that broadly the Signal organization? from that whole period, would you say that they got it right? Oh, I absolutely. Uh, they, again, <clears throat> some of these individuals, George Squire, you know, the very first aircraft and the, not just the aircraft, but the doctrine to use aircraft, reconnaissance, various photographics, and, and to balloons, you know, these are all, you know, the Signal Corps was the jack of all trades. Um, I mean, you might even say they were the special ops organization of the pre-World War I period, uh, because they were they were bringing in and they were incorporating every piece of new technology that was available, and they were looking at it in a military aspect. It's really stunning to see what was accomplished. Uh, 
the the Signal Corps breaks off uh, the Aviation Corps, becomes its own in May of 1918. And, and that was really more of a function, I think, of their own internal command and control. And, and you know, pilots wanting to be their own entity as opposed to part of a large organization. There's a lot of uh, debate upon that. But you can see the Signal Corps continues to develop the wireless radios for airplanes uh, well into the, um, you know, even after, until the Air Corps becomes the Air Force in 1947. But uh, the intelligent, thoughtful, well-connected, when it comes to both the civilian and academic world, officers of the pre-World War I Signal Corps were, um, it's really remarkable to see what was accomplished. You mentioned the the kind of the evolution of the Army Air Forces. In many ways, the the advent of American air power is kind of the opposite story from the one you're describing. It's a lot of friction. It's a lot of individuals who are <coughs> exceptional, who are foresighted. I'm thinking the Billy Mitchell types, but also end up in lots of fights. There's lots of headbutting versus the the way you're describing kind of the the evolution of the signal. Uh, core where it, it seems to be a little more collegial and it seems to be a lot less people kind of jumping off of buildings to prove their points, which literally happened in the advent of air power. So, so what do you think the difference is there? Well, the, uh, you know, when the Wright brothers received the patent for powered flight, um, you could almost say that, uh, you know, this idea of knowledge transfer and knowledge, uh, you know, patenting ideas was somewhat in its infancy because this is where certainly the the air, airplane, um, other companies were producing similar things and, you know, the the inability of America to create airplanes before World War I is, is, is really a function of lawsuits. Uh, you know, the Wright brothers sue... Uh, Vought and these other Curtis, you know, for these minor ideas of is it, are you warping your wing or are you creating what's called an aileron? I mean, very technical ideas, you know, who's right, who's wrong, and it tends to gum up the system, but that's a democracy, right? We, uh, we protect intellectual property and, um, you know, things in the, we see it nowadays in the telecommunications, lots of lawsuits, who has what idea, who creates the others, um, and, and that does come across in a lot of areas to include wireless. You know, the Signal Corps creates its own radios, but is accused of, of taking the ideas from other individuals, uh, which, um, you know, these are very complex mathematical, scientific you know, waves and, you know, how is certain things emitted and, you know, vacuum tubes. Uh, it's very, it can be very complicated and certainly for the courts. And so you see that play out, but the, it does play out. And, and this is where, you know, we are, we create a very strong aircraft industry during the interwar period. Um, you know, Grumman and uh, Boeing and a lot of these other very strong aircraft companies create the air force that we need uh, during the Second World War. Um, and they're all fitted with excellent radios. <laughs> so the, kind of to, to conclude with a very broad question, 
As I mentioned earlier, kind of the, the galaxy brain meme and often, unfortunately, the, the internet um, way of thinking about the history of technology is there's a prophet, the prophet is absolutely right, but the prophet is not listened to until it's too late. Again, that's kind of the Billy Mitchell story. Um, how instead should we think about the history of technology? Instead of following the narrative of the, of the prophet, how should we look at this in kind of a very broad way from, from somebody who is a historian of technology? Well, uh, my, uh, my chair, Dr. Walters, would, would cringe if I said, you know, technology is, uh, evolves uh, and it follows some sort of uh, path that uh, is a, a path of improvement, which, you know, the question would obviously be improvement for whom, for what, so I'll avoid that. But I would say um, the human condition is such that until humans evolve, there are certain needs that, that are going to be pretty relevant. That need to communicate is always going to be relevant, whether you're a civilian or whether you're a soldier. And and companies that are able to fill that need uh, with a device that is both easy, uh, that is intuitive, and that is reliable will always find a place. And most technology is not revolutionary. It is just a minor improvement upon uh, what was already around. And, and perhaps that would probably be the biggest uh, thing I would say is um, the this there is an evolution, but it's really just minor improvements, and we're seeing minor improvements here, minor improvements there. Now, when we look back, it looks like a dramatic change, but at the time, remember this, you know, we go from 1898 to 1918, that's 20 years, that's quite a span of time uh, for this early uh, wireless into radio. So um, incremental changes and don't expect anything more than that. Um, the, this this fallacy of great leaps, uh, I believe, is just that. No, I, I tend to agree and I, I tend to have that play out in my own work on military theory. It's that we often want to find the idiot button, right? We want to find the one person with the one technology and we don't see all of the different connections that they have to other technologies, to other thoughts. Yeah, this has been a fascinating conversation. Professor Regenberg, thank you. Well, thank you. My pleasure. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.